Welcome to Spark.Grow, a series of conversations on topics that are critical to companies and people that want to grow, scale, and maintain their performance. Spark.Grow is brought to you by Ann Arbor Spark and hosted by Dave Haviland, founder of Fimation based in Ann Arbor. This conversation was recorded in the podcast studios of the Ann Arbor District Library. Now we'll turn it over to Dave Haviland for this conversation. Welcome to the latest version of the Spark.Grow podcast. This is Dave Haviland. I'm a consultant with the Fimation Strategy Group, and today I am joined by Phil Roos. And Phil has a uh, number of different hats that he wears. Um, what's the latest hat that you're wearing, Phil? Uh, I am CEO of a consulting firm called Great Lakes Growth Works. That's my day job and primary job. I also do a lot of uh, volunteer work in the environmental space uh, uh, that uh, has also bridged over into the consulting work as mm. well. But uh, that's uh, trying to do a little save the world stuff on the side. I was um, checking out your LinkedIn profile this morning <clears throat> because I, I know you, but I didn't know your background. And you started early in your career on the marketing side. Uh, and then I want to talk about uh, the business that you owned. Um, but but has has starting in marketing influenced where you've been and, and how you've done things, um, you know, m later in your career? Yeah, I, I actually, I was actually originally trained as a consultant, sorry, as an accountant. I'm oh. uh, one of the many non-practicing CPAs out there in the mm -hmm. world. Uh, somebody told me uh, it would be a good idea uh, you, that could make you really employable, but it didn't have a lot to do with who I was. Mm. I think I'm about understanding people and trying to help them pursue their ambitions or their higher selves and, and make a difference, whether it's in the business world or otherwise. And so I was always attracted to marketing and understanding what make people makes people tick, and that's that's kind of grounded everything I do whether it's in the environmental space or it's uh, with uh, the business I'm running and no matter what kind of company I'm trying to help. And for about 10 years, you did you <clears throat> start and run and sell Arbor Strategy Group? Yeah, what? that's right. Okay. And um, so talk a little bit about that journey. Yeah, so Arbor Strategy Group was originally started, this is sort of my, this is my third consulting firm I'm on now, oh. and I have a, a general strategy as you start out with some broad values mm -hmm. and a, a general sense of who you are and what you stand for and what you care about. And then after a few years, you figure out who you really are and okay. what you bring to the world. So we, we started as a general growth strategy consulting firm, did a lot of brand work, new product work, and generally strategic planning, helping companies grow. And then we stumbled into an opportunity, which is what I, I'm, you know, we do strategy work for yeah, clients, yeah. but part of strategy <laughs> is uh, when you stumble into something, knowing to, to capitalize on it. Nice. And uh, I had an old friend named Bob McMath uh, who left this world a few years ago, but Bob was a marketing journalist who used to write a new product column hmm. in, I think it was Brand Marketing Magazine, where he'd review new products from around the world, mostly in the consumer product space. And he, over time, he had this collection of all the products he'd reviewed, uh, and it ended up being almost like a museum of new products. And I had visited this uh, collection when it was in Ithaca, New York, and was blown away at the potential it had, not just for archiving the past history of the consumer products world, but also what it could mean for companies who were trying to figure out how to innovate or where to go mm. by understanding sort of the history of what had worked and what hadn't. And so uh, Bob was retiring, and he asked me if I had any interest in, in buying the collection and carrying it on. 
I didn't know exactly what we would do with it, but I knew it was a national treasure. We bought it. We worked with it for a few years, which meant we had to set up shoppers around the world. We had to track every new product launch around the world, had shoppers all over the world who would collect the most innovative products and bring it to our collection. But we also tracked what worked and what didn't. And out of that, we developed a model for predicting what kind of new products will be successful in the next few years. And it just helped us to uh, realize we were really an innovation firm and we could help companies improve their batting average and really get to the big new ideas that would be successful in the future. So was the core of the business still consulting or did it start to morph so that you really oriented around this museum and the the, the, the products itself? It's still consulting. Okay. Uh, the museum was just our, uh, I guess in marketing terms, our reason to believe, uh, yeah. you know, gave us something unique that uh, people realized, oh, they must know something about new products and innovation. And for us, it, it was the core of what uh, became our intellectual property mm -hmm. that really differentiated us. We had, is a, 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 traditionally, innovation was about going and talking to your customer or end user, figuring out what their needs are, which of those aren't being met, and then solving for those. Mm -hmm. And the only problem with that is... If you solve for those, by the time you're ready to go to market, the market's already changed. Mm. So we we were able to be uh, Wayne Gretzky a little bit yeah. and uh, skate to where the puck's actually going to go. And so uh, take people's needs, but be able to, we had a model that would project what that's going to mean in terms of what new products they'll want two or three or five years into the future. Mm. And that was, uh, at the time, a big breakthrough. And when you decided to sell the company, was that kind of always the strategy and that was a natural path? Was there some kind of, um, you know, unusual things <clears throat> going on then? What, what, was going, what was going on when you, uh, when you decided to sell the company? Yeah, I always had in my mind that at some point we might either need a partner or might want to sell. Um, I'm a variety seeker. I like to move on to new mm -hmm. things eventually. So I had that in the back of my mind, but it was really a couple of circumstances that, that led to selling or initially just sort of exploring partnerships. One was our business was becoming increasingly international, global mm -hmm. in nature, innovation. Where we had big clients who were doing things across markets, and we were headquartered in Ann Arbor, Michigan, had a little satellite office in Chicago and a couple of people scattered elsewhere. But what really competing in that space would have meant over time was, would be opening an office in Europe mm -hmm. or Japan or someplace. And that would have been a big step forward. Uh, I also recognized, uh, I, had, I was in a business group called Vistage, uh, and we had an econometric uh, forecaster who was uh, presenting to us. This is a couple years before the crash. And he pretty much laid out exactly what ended up happening yeah. in 2008. And, and uh, we were at a time when we were really hot, innovation was hot, we saw storm clouds on the horizon. And it seemed like for that reason also, it made sense to just explore, uh, if, no, if for no other, explore partnerships or possibly selling, if for no other reason to have some resilience mm -hmm. if in the event of a downturn. Uh, and any lessons or observations or anything like that from the sale? From uh, yeah, a couple things. Timing is everything. Uh, we were able to close on the deal August 1st, 2008. Wow. Very fortunate. And uh, uh, I thank uh, the higher beings all the time for, uh, for that. Uh, also, uh, you do need 
sometimes big change to catapult you to new heights or to figure out where to go from there. We were able to, once we, we got purchased by a company called GFK, and it gave us an cl- immediate global presence, and we became their global innovation practice, and it gave us the ability to take the work that we were doing, the model, the, the trade craft, and apply it around the world, which we wouldn't have been able to do um, um, on our own very yeah. effectively. And then it, for me personally, it, it exposed me to a bigger world and ultimately leaving there and you know exploring other things that had been important to me. Was there anything hard to do about the transaction for what it was going to mean for your employees or you know sometimes that all works out very easily and sometimes it doesn't so um, you know was there any challenges there? Yeah absolutely yeah it meant big opportunities for for some and for the organization overall but it, it meant being part of a very different culture. We mm. had a very tightly knit culture. I would say very collaborative and small d democratic in nature, mm-hmm. not political. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, we all had a stake in the company. Uh, both uh, many of us, many of the employees had stock, but also I think everybody had a voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, very democratic in the way we made big decisions. So they were all part of that. But then. Once you become part of a big company, uh, there's some of that, but there are some decisions that are being made remotely that you don't have a, a, mm-hmm. a clear role in. So yeah. that's always an adjustment. So even in the 10 minutes that we've just been talking now, n- newness infuses much of what you talk about. Um, so, so talk about the new consulting firm that you're that you're doing now. Yeah, sure. Well, so after we sold Arbor Strategy, and I stayed on for about two and a half years and really to help establish our practice in other parts of the world and, and just make it sustainable. And then I, I just had a, I had been raising kids and running a business, uh, running ragged for a number of years, and I was uh, on a probably about a 70, 80% travel schedule, much of an international. I just had a yearning to give back and to be more involved in the community. And I had a kind of a nagging concern about uh, a number of things, uh, climate change and some environmental things. So I wanted to play a role in that. Always been a big uh, Michigan fan, not just the football team, mm-hmm. but the, this state and all it stands for and the unique identity, the unique sense of a special uh, Michigan version of the American dream that mm-hmm. we have here that I felt very part of and I felt like I'd been able to benefit from. So I I really wanted to get involved in helping this state uh, move to the next level and this region, uh, kind of revitalizing the Rust Belt. I wanted to help startups. I had all these interests that had been looming. So I left after two and a half years and just dove into all of that, Mm. uh, uh, as well as uh, taking care of a few bucket list things and (laughs) then just uh, better quality of life. And that ultimately led to uh, maybe about, so I got involved in a couple of startups, uh, just a variety of really fun things. But I did miss being part of creating something and part of having a team. I had some clients, former clients who approached me. I had some startups who wanted help. And I missed the kind of the helping profession part Mm -hmm. of consulting as well as starting a business. I guess I'm really an entrepreneur at heart. Uh, So after about three years or so, I and some of my former partners and colleagues from Arbor Strategy decided to start this firm. Mm -hmm. And and what's the focus of the firm? Well, 
it's it, it, at the surface, it sounds very similar to Arbor Strategy. We're about helping companies innovate and grow and realize their potential. Uh, there's a unique sense of purpose to this firm, though, and it came out of what I was feeling in the time after I left Arbor Strategy and GFK, and I, I just realized how the world was changing, that we were in this world where disruption was the norm. Hmm. Uh, what is true today is not going to be true tomorrow. Anything can happen. Any In the business world, any competitor can eat your lunch. Your business model can be completely transformed due to the role of both, uh, you know, of changes in uh, the way consumers and people are changing, uh, the role millennials and younger younger people were playing and transforming the way we think about society, the role of technology, big market shifts. And so I felt a purpose that around just helping companies and organizations transcend and capitalize on that disruption. Mm -hmm. uh, so disrupt rather than being disrupted. <laughs> um, you know, what, what does innovation mean today then? Well, what I talked about the Wayne Gretzky uh, quote a minute ago about uh, being able to not just solve for what's happening today, what your customers need today, but thinking about where they're going to be in tomorrow. I think it's more true than ever. It's just more challenging. Hmm. So with that innovation, that predictive model I talked about that we developed about 10 years ago with Arbor Strategy Group, we were able to take consumer or customer needs today and activity in the marketplace, what mm -hmm. kind of innovation was, to use a familiar term, about to hit a tipping point but mm -hmm. hadn't quite done so yet. And we had a way of identifying that, that, those kinds of patterns and saying, okay, in three years or five years, this mm -hmm. stuff is going to be big. Today, that's not enough. Mm -hmm. What we realized today is you actually have to start with what is going to be disrupted about your market? Mm -hmm. What social or market or technology adoption triggers to, to disruption are going to affect you? And, and what's it going to mean in terms of different scenarios of what your basic business is going to look like? And I'm talking about really fundamental things, how you source your ingredients for your product, how you uh, find labor to... Uh, uh, perform services, how you bring your products to market, uh, what your product, beyond even selling products to being more in a service kind of environment. So, so are you saying all of those areas or any of those areas could be disrupted? And you have to look for the disrupt the potential disruption in all yeah, of Yeah, that's right. And it's really the fusion of those. So it's not just, uh, okay, uh, millennials like to have things more quickly or mm -hmm. uh, people, they're more ethical consumers out there or, or uh, we're going to have AI and uh, robotics and 3D printing. It's the melding of those forces into things that would specifically have an impact on your business. And so what... What we really believe now and the way we approach innovation is totally differently now. We actually start with what are going to be the disruptions. Mm -hmm. What is your market going to look like five years? Not what products are going to be out there, but what's your market going to look like? Is it even going to exist mm -hmm. in its current form? Then go back to the human-centered approach of now let's talk to our customers, our end users, and then let's project their evolving needs against that backdrop. And what we do is create a future map of demand three years, five years into the future, and then you solve for that yeah. rather than 
people's needs now. Um, that sounds great. It also sounds um, overwhelming and disorienting. <laughs> so are, is, is some of the consulting work that you do helping people deal with, um, you know, the, the magnitude of change that you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. And, 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 um, and do a lot of your clients struggle with that or not? I mean, it just that that seems like if we can't count on anything being the way it is, which I was just reading an article yesterday that said there's now machines that will exercise for for you. So it turns out that you you don't need to actually exercise in order to exercise. That sounds right? perfect. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that and um, uh, but but also kind of disorienting because then what is the? It, it makes you ask the question why Why do I exercise then? You know what am I looking for because I could I could get the benefits of exercise without it. Um, so so is there an element of that or is is there not really? Is it is it more um, you know kind of business oriented and there's not a lot of emotion that plays into this uh, innovation process? That's a great question. I think it can be disorienting and part of what we try to do is to simplify and pull out the really important threads. Uh, very often, if you lay out all the disruptors that might be affecting a business from what its customers are going to want in the future to uh, technological impacts that are going to happen to the channels, to supply chain, all the things that could, could change, there are often some common threads. And what we end up finding in a lot of cases is that we go back to some really fundamental things. And one that comes up very often is the role of purpose. Hmm. In a crazy world where everything's changing before you, uh, if you could start with one thing, it would be, why am I on this planet? Why mm -hmm. does this firm exist? Or why do I exist as an individual? And what am I, what do I feel in my gut that we're here to do? And if you start with that, it kind of goes back to how mm -hmm. I talked about starting a business, particularly a consultancy, Start with that and your values, and then, then everything else is negotiable mm -hmm. uh, from that. Mm -hmm. And and I, I find that uh, th that's often that's an example of one common thread. That mm -hmm. if we can get to that, then we've got a baseline to start from, mm -hmm. and then we can figure out yeah what is where do I go with my channel or my go to market strategy or whatever else. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, how how long does it take to do uh, that kind of analysis that you're talking about? Is it a month? Is it six months? And and then this is leading to a question of how hard would this be for a small business owner to do in some kind of approximate way on their own? Yeah, the, uh, another one of the big things that's changed. I, there were a number of things after I left the business world and the consulting world for a few years and then came back that I, I noticed. One of them is that the just as the rate of change in the market has increased, so has people's need to act quickly and their patience uh, in, in coming up with a solution. So the beauty of this general approach that I'm talking about is it's expandable or collapsible. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's true from a time horizon and also a budget horizon. So there's the uh, fancy six-month, 12-month kind of solution, but very often this is a month or two, and mm -hmm. for some small companies, this might be a half-day work session, wow. uh, bringing a few facts to bear and getting it 70% right uh, mm -hmm. rather than 100% right, and then do some follow-up fact-finding. So it, it is something that a big part of it is the thinking, and then you can dial up the fact-finding and the mm -hmm. validation as, as much as budget and time will permit. 
with some of my clients, I'm finding that the fact-finding research kind of stuff is actually coming after the decision rather than before. Mm-hmm. So it used to be we do a lot of analysis and think about what's the right decision to make. Now we ballpark that and then say we're going to validate that in the marketplace after we've made this kind of general orientation toward a uh, uh, we've we've decided to orient toward a direction and then we're going to validate it yeah absolutely makes sense and that's old-fashioned scientific method i guess start Mm -hmm. out with a hypothesis and then validate it Uh, what i'd add to that is i think we should trust intuition a little bit more Mm -hmm. than we're taught to do uh, the, the older I get, the more I do that, the more I bring that into the business. And as long as you've been around the block a little bit and have some pattern recognition skills, I think that's a safe thing to do. Always validate, always do that fact-finding, but start with what what feels like the right thing. Because yeah. most of us, if we tune into that, we can actually we actually have a sense of what the future is going to look mm-hmm. like. Uh, we just have to tune into it properly. Yeah, yeah. What do you see clients getting right about innovation and the innovation process? Well, that's a stumper. When they get it right, it's about being able to start by not holding on to stranded assets or mm-hmm. existing view of the world mm-hmm. because that, I think that's the most common flaw is to say, I am in this business. Mm -hmm. We have these machines and these plants that make these kinds of products. Now, what can we do from there? So it's the old core competency model, which I think there's still some validity and it's helpful to know what you're good at and what you have that's leverageable. But in the digital age, everything's pretty negotiable. Uh, You can find partners Mm -hmm. to make products for you. You can, uh, I've been surprised even in the, we do a lot of work in the, I'll call it the craft consumer products world, Mm -hmm. helping a lot of merging companies there, organic food companies or uh, craft beer companies, that sort of thing. And I was at an investor conference recently where they were telling entrepreneurs we will value you more if you don't make your products. Hmm. And that may not be, in the digital world, that's not surprising at all, yeah, right? right? But in the brick and mortar consumer products world, that's kind of a big idea. Yeah. So if you're a big consumer products company, it's hard to bring that thinking into your world, but you should. And if you can at least start by eliminating those constraints and 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 it's really about following your customers Mm -hmm. and where they're going to be going over the next few years then you can solve for what can i do with my existing assets versus partnering with other people to get there so when they're saying that they won't value you uh, in in a sense they'll value less for um making the product what they're saying they'll value you more for is being in touch with what your customer wants and especially being able to predict that into the future absolutely and then and then They'll just kind of make the stuff. Whatever you decide needs to be made will be made through whatever resources yeah. to do that. It's yeah. interesting. I think it's about locking in on your purpose and who you're trying to serve. That's the starting point, mm-hmm. not what are my assets and mm-hmm. where can I, who can I serve with those assets. And, and how often are clients that you're working with able to release you know, I'll say it well enough, able to release the past well enough. Is that something that almost universally everyone struggles with? Um, or or is that le- more like just a third of people? You know, what's... I'd say the uh, vast majority struggle with it. Yeah, yeah. 
that's and, the case in my client base too. The the bigger the company, the more they struggle. The impact that we have, you know, that purpose that I, I talked about earlier for us, it's really about helping them transcend the disruption, be part of the new economy, the new, better, healthier, more sustainable, uh, prosperous world for all of us. And I think we help in baby steps with big companies. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll lock on, we'll be with some people who really want to make some change. So I almost feel like we're subversive. We're mm-hmm. we're helping them. Uh, see things in a little bit differently on the margins. Smaller companies, that's what they're about. They're pathfinders mm-hmm. on that. And so that's exciting to have those two worlds. And actually, uh, we do a lot of bringing entrepreneurs into the big company environment and, and big companies who know about scale, mm-hmm. uh, exposing them to entrepreneurs. And that, a lot of that uh, back and forth is really helpful for I both parties. I just wanted to head toward the people side of innovation. So that's one element of it is is infusing a different skill set or a different way of thinking um, into the environment. Are, are there other ways that people play into an effective innovation process or the innovation process? The role of people in the process? Yeah. And maybe the importance of people in the process or what? Well, there is no process without the people. The, I, I think it's people who are willing to bring, willing to challenge existing thinking, and willing to back to purpose. I guess again, willing to ground what we're doing about who we are. Mm. It's a weird thing. Is that at the same time that we're talking about all these external things that affect a business or an organization. What ends up being important when that's happening is an internal view of who we are mm-hmm. and what we bring. And, and, and so there tend to be people in organizations who bring that consciousness mm-hmm. to the process, and I think that's really helpful. Sort of a combination of that mm-hmm. and then the expansive external, yeah. yeah, well, how's the world changing? And there's always a fit there somewhere. Uh, so you have different role players. I think uh, you need to kind of a, a, you know, this is a cliche, but innovation's a team sport. You mm-hmm. need people to play different roles, some who are the external provocateurs and some who are the guardians of mm-hmm. this is who we are. It's who we are in terms of our values and our purpose, not who we are in terms of our assets. That's right. the big change. And um, as you think about yourself, um you know, what's the mix within you of the external seeker and the internal guardian? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we're all much better at doing this for our clients oh, than we oh, are I for know ourselves. That. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's all kind of swimming around in, in my brain and in my heart uh, at any point in time. So I, I think of I think of myself as being right brain and left brain, uh, heart-centered and rational, mm-hmm. And uh, I try to play both of those roles, yeah. uh, be internal guardian of um, the spirit of who we are, what, what our role here is on this planet, as well as um, where's the world going? What does that mean for us? Well, and I think absolutely um, there are a few people that can do it. I also think that it's rare and it's part of why you're able to create a consulting firm to do what you're talking about, right? Because you have both of those pieces and you're able to bring it into a situation and uh, and have both of those elements inform your process in a way that's probably, un- well, that is, I'm guessing, unusual and um, 
uh, and, and that a lot of companies don't have internally. I appreciate that. Now that you've said that, it gives me something to shoot for and <laughs> or aspire to. <laughs> no, I think uh, I, I'm a lot of times what I see with business owners, especially around service providers and consulting groups, is that they're the ones that actually were able to put together the two opposing forces. And, and, and because of that, they created or saw an opportunity that they were able to capitalize on for the whole world's good. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we need these skills. We need that unique combination in the world more so that we can do things more effectively. And that's why consulting firms uh, uh, are, exist, because companies on their own just can't get to the same place that experts can. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've been a leader in a lot of different places. You lead projects and lead clients. You're leading your company. Um, what, what does being a good leader mean for you? A lot of it is about transparency for me. It's uh, not trying to pretend I'm somebody I'm not. Mm. It's about articulating values and vision. And it's not just my vision. It's I, I will throw out general concepts. I do. I I'm many. I think many people who are in roles like what you and I have were blessed and cursed with always seeing what the future looks like, or at least some aspects of the future, and having a sense of urgency about that, uh, whether we're talking about the world at large or a business we're helping or our own companies. Uh, So I try to always be formulating uh, a revised vision for Mm -hmm. where we're going. This is not a fixed thing, and I try to articulate that, but uh, but I share it with people, and I ask them to participate in that. So that's a big part of it for me is bringing some vision and values, but then inviting others to be part of that, to have a voice, whether it's formally through stock or it's through just having their voice and, and sharing. So I no, no idea is fixed for me. It's mm-hmm. always, this is generally where I'm thinking we might want to go. What do you think? And put your fingerprints on it as well. Yeah, that sounds good. And when you're getting the feedback from others, is that informally in the conversations around lunch and beer and afternoons that aren't as busy as usual? Um, or is there a, you know, a formal meeting that you do once a year? Like what does what sharing the vision look like um, and how you do it? It's 365 days of the year. It's it's a constantly evolving process. Yes, we have uh, bu- budgeting and, you know, periodic big shifts where mm-hmm. we say, hey, let's take stock of what's happened the last year. Uh, for us in a, a boutique firm, it's not as formal like we do it on December 1st of every year. We sit down and have our strategy session. It's when we're at a, an inflection point. Mm-hmm. And in today's world, you're, most companies are in an inflection point every, every uh, year or a few months. Yeah. And, I, and you have to be prepared to reinvent yourself at some level. Uh, so for me, it's gathering during those inflection points, but then doing it much more informally all the time and floating mm-hmm. ideas and, and asking people for their articulation of what it means to them and where they see us going. The other thing about being a leader that I, I think is uh, really important, uh, there, there's uh, being transparent, being willing to be vulnerable, to say you don't have it all figured out, uh, at least uh, that's what I do. I don't know. Some people are probably have it all figured <laughs> out, but I, 
I realize that I don't, and I, I think that's okay with your, uh, your team members uh, to share that because it makes them more comfortable uh, feeling the same way when they don't have it figured out. But trying to bring your best self every day, and I don't always do that, but I, uh, I, I notice that the way that I am and where I am in feeling about myself and the future uh, in any given moment has an impact on everybody else. Mm. So trying to remind myself each day when I come in, bring your best self. Mm -hmm. Small little thing and mm. uh, try to practice it as much as I can. Yeah, and uh, sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and, and maybe partly related to that, you talked about uh, wanting to be part of something bigger and, and the, the role of a team around you. Uh, you know, what do they... What do they offer you? Um, how do they help you? How do how how do the folks around you contribute to what you're what you have in your brain and what you're trying to see happen in the world? I'm a, uh, I'm really partial to the Abraham Lincoln team of rivals mm -hmm. approach. I wouldn't say that uh, the people I gather around me are rivals necessarily, but uh, they're not. That we, we all share the similar values and are like-minded at a basic level, but just like in a lot of marriages or business partnerships, opposites attract. And uh, my, my style's naturally kind of collaborative, so I, I, I think that it uh, has weaknesses to it, but one of the strengths is that it, it's an easy environment to have lots of different people around me and, and people who play different roles. Mm -hmm. So we have... Uh, people who are more analytical, people who are more provocative, people who uh, see the future and some who are more internal uh, guardians of who we are. And, and that's what uh, the kind of environment, I'm not sure I seek that, but that's kind of what happens. And I, I really love that. It, it, it makes me, it animates me and allows me to uh, be a better leader. Um, I, um, I wonder... Are you intuitively looking for that when you're hiring people, or is there something that you build into your process to think, well, we have, you know, we have um, somebody who's more provocative. We need somebody that's more um, consensus oriented, or something like that. Is there any conscious part of that when you're looking for people and, and hiring? I can't say that we're as thoughtful about that as we should be, that we actually have a grid with mm -hmm. who do we have at every slot and what are the different roles. That's a great idea. That's uh, <laughs> something I should I would advise my clients to do, but we haven't done. I think it comes up in the course of uh, uh, doing a search or, or maybe finding somebody who we're considering adding to the firm or, or partnering with. Some of these could be external partners is that that's, the, that's where the discussion ends up leading. Mm -hmm. What role could this person play and how would they balance us or add value. Uh, but it would be great to be more intentional about that. That's um, a takeaway I'm going to have from this, right, from this discussion. <laughs> so that's why you're so good at what you there do. There you go. Um, based on the conversation that we've had, my guess is that you're able to, especially because you know your space very well, um, you're able to come to strategies pretty intuitively and that you trust that intuition as opposed to some elaborate strategy process or something like that. Um, uh, is that right? Is that how you make strategic decisions? Is that how you adopt strategies? Or, or are there other pieces to, to what your strategy development looks like and your, and your decision-making, your strategy decision-making looks like? It depends on the complexity of the problem and the scope of 
what we're the problem we're trying to solve for. Hmm. If it's a big complex business with uh, many aspects and lots of disruption happening in the industry around us, uh, we, you know, we have to start with uh, we, we always have to do the fact finding and the mm-hmm. analysis, but we might start out with more of that than we would otherwise. But I have to say, even in those situations, uh, what we'll do is we'll have an immersion phase where we don't try to find every fact, but we try to just understand the lay of the land so that we can build some intuition around what the answer might be. And then, back to your scientific method uh, comment earlier, take our best early, very early crack at what do we think the answer might be, and then continuously mm-hmm. refine that based on input. But with smaller companies or companies in urgent need, this sometimes this does need to be an immediate process, and I'm, I'm really comfortable with that. Uh, if we're in, uh, if it needs to be thought of in an hour, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we'll be... 70, 80 percent right, right. In, that, in that time period just from pattern recognition and intuition. Yeah. Never a good idea to just stop at that, though. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a lot of times when I think of innovation, I think of failure, mistakes, you know, things like that. What, um, what role does making wrong decisions and failing and, and mistakes play into the whole innovation process? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because what was just running through my mind Uh, around the last question is in the new world, just like what we've learned from the technology world, the software world in particular, this isn't about spending a bunch of years coming up with one product or service Mm -hmm. and bringing it to market and it works or it doesn't. It's It's constant pilot testing and refinement. And that's easier to do when you're just moving electrons around, but mm-hmm. when you're in the physical product space, it's a little more challenging. But that's that's what we counsel our clients to do and, and encourage them about now is to find ways to fail quickly, to try things, test and refine mm-hmm. in the best way they can, given the realities of their business. Because I think that's what the world is. And that, honestly, that's the way I approach our business. We are pilot testing things all the time. We're constantly mm-hmm. refining the trade craft. We never pretend that we've got it figured out. And every project, there's a little advance on the thinking. And uh, that's because we, we don't assume uh, this is the answer mm. from the start. Yeah. Are there any um, any big lessons slash mistakes slash failures that stand out for you as you think back to Arbor Strategy or the new firm? You know, any of that. Any any things that were personally meaningful for you? And I know it's on the spot, so sometimes those can be hard to, <laughs> to access. You know what I mean? But yeah. I think one of the most challenging areas for us, and it's an area that I have a lot of personal passion, is figuring out the right business model for helping smaller companies, emerging companies Hmm. that don't have a lot of cash, so they may not have a -hmm. a way to pay you very much. When, before I started this firm, I gave a lot of free labor to Mm -hmm. some of these companies. And I did some of that uh, in the context of this firm. And then we've experimented a lot with different models. And I think we've gotten to some approaches that work, but it's but it was a lot of trial and error. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, I, we could be an executive coach or a, come on in and tell me the story of what you're struggling with. And I'll, if I have to, I can in an hour or two give you an answer right. for that. It's not a very good business model for us, right. and it's also not very enduring for them because uh, that's one piece of it. Then you got to kind of coach through the rest of it. Well, what do I do next? What do I do after mm-hmm. that? The opposite extreme is getting deeply involved and and where you're you kind of feel like you own the company. You know, right. Their future is at stake if you're not there to answer every question. So we've we've experimented with both yeah. ends of that and end up with something in the middle where we construct an engagement that's practical. We have to be creative about how we might get paid. It might be some cash. It might be some equity. It might be a little bit now and a little bit later mm-hmm. uh, where we're tied to their success and we're adding real value, but we're working within the, the, the realities of their, their business and we're helping in the most impactful way we can. So there are a lot of, as an example, a lot of companies really what the, is on their mind in, when they're in that stage, they're just ready to ramp up growth is, I just want to raise some money. So whatever it'll take me to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, we can be helpful with that, but we're not investment bankers. Uh, uh, there are other people that do that better. We can help you at the high level. What we can do is help you build the growth story that'll help you raise the money and support you during that process. So that was a reality that, uh, you know, uh, there's several, several false starts in there that, uh, yeah, I, um, when I started consulting, I started with startups because that's where I, um, where I wasn't, where I was coming from. And, um, I, I learned quickly that they it's hard to pay the mortgage um, w- working with them. And so when I think about it, I think, well, that that part of the market can be 10% of my portfolio yeah. or 20% of my portfolio maybe. Um, but unless you have a war chest that um, and a nest egg that you can just tap into and uh, use that to fund life, um, startups are both very appealing and very hard to fit into a business model. Yeah, the same approach. That's what we do yeah. is we manage the the amount of the business that is in that arena because it's hard to hard to help out in a little way. You know, you mm-hmm. really do have to have a level of commitment to their success. That's important. Uh, um, the other thing is that we have a set of criteria, kind of success criteria that we apply to that work, and we're mm. we have an honest discussion right from the beginning about whether they have something that's likely to succeed. Both because uh, what we can be helpful doing is uh, have asking those hard questions and let them confront that before they mm-hmm. invest their life savings in the business. Right. And so sometimes that means uh, we tend to like companies that have a little bit of proof of concept and a few other things. Mm-hmm. And that, that makes it a better investment on right. both parties' part. Yeah, I used to think in terms of, um, is this company 100 to 1 odds or 10 to 1 odds or 3 to 1 odds? You know, what are, where, mm. where are they in that, in that uh, risk curve? Um, and having some of those things like you're talking about help to move it. It, it doesn't move it to 3 to 1. It moves it from 100 to 1 to, to 10 to 1, but at least that's yeah. a better profile. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I want to touch on two more things while we have time together. The first is... How is technology changing innovation? It's almost maybe too simple and obvious a question to ask, but I still want to ask it anyway to get your perspective. So, how is what's what's the role that technology is 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 playing in in what innovation looks like these days? 
it's absolutely fundamental. It doesn't wa- matter what industry you're in. You can be in a, uh, obviously, in, in a directly technology business, and it, it's everything. Uh, but in the world I come from, consumer products, that's where I grew up. Started at Quaker Oats, and uh, that's always maybe half of the work that we do. We do some technology, healthcare, other financial services, and other other businesses. But in even in that world that you don't think of as being technology related, it's it's been hugely disruptive, and it starts with how people buy your products or services. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we've been doing uh, as we got into this technology tracking is we began doing a uh, periodic tracking of the impact of e-commerce and, and, and the, the shift toward omni-channel and particularly the impact that Amazon is having. Uh, and it's so far-reaching and it's happening so quickly and it's changing uh, the basic premise of how you go to market. For a startup, uh, in addition to what I said earlier, uh, where there's encouragement from investors to not make your own product, but to source it from other people. There's also encouragement to not sell your product directly to retailers as a starting point. Mm. Start on Amazon, start on your website, Mm. build proof of concept, fail a few times, Mm -hmm. uh, refine the idea, then go to the big uh, grocery stores or mass merchants or whoever Mm. uh, sells your product. So uh, pretty fundamental, and for big companies, the role of you have to play in an omni-channel way. You have to have an integrated way of being, offering your products or services wherever people want them, whenever they want them, in the way they want them, or you die. Yeah. So that's just one example. But then you get to things like, uh, oh, the impact of 3D printing on, uh, or um, here's a good example in the uh, OTC health space. Uh, there's There's a big disruptor for many organizations in that arena around do-it-yourself health. So uh, I'll get a little graphic here for a second, but in five years or so, you're going to be able to, if you want to do this sort of thing, pee into the toilet, have results from your analysis Mm. beamed up to the cloud to tell you what nutrient deficiencies you have, mm. or what medication you might have to take. These are this is the kind of implication that yeah. if you're a company that sells products in that space, all of a sudden this is going to be about service. It's right. going to be about how do I give people the right mix of what they need and do it instantly. That's pretty transformative, and and I could give you a hundred examples of things like, like that. that. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. The other topic is uh, the generations. And, um, uh, you know, what observations do you have? Um, I get, I get uh, really tired of the um, kind of starting this conversation out in a negative way because there's no reason to. So, so what, are you, what are you seeing happening from a generational perspective in the different generations that are, that are working in the workplace now? Yeah, I don't know if this would have been true of our parents' generation, but for me, working with younger people, and I'm not going to say millennials or people of a certain cohort group, but uh, with each new cohort group, there are such 
fundamental changes in the way they look at the world. I mean, it's not that the, the total value sets are different, or, but, but just uh, the way that they process information, the way that they communicate, uh, the way that what they think is important, that's been just so foundational for me. And I really noticed it in starting GrowthWorks, that initially I was surrounded by uh, mostly 20-somethings. And they challenged my basic worldview, uh, what was important and how we did business. And I struggled with it initially, but uh, it's been fundamental to our survival and the way we look at the future. And then we've been able to bring that to clients. Uh, so that, that's a big area in the innovation space mm -hmm. is uh, how do we innovate for Gen Z or millennials? That's, uh, we uh, do a lot of work in that space because mm -hmm. everybody's trying to figure that out. And very often it's not about just developing products or services for that, those cohorts, but it's about being inspired by the way they think about the world for products or services that'll serve everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's been a big insight for me over the last few years. Yeah. That's great. Um, and I completely agree. Uh, I find the new way of thinking that uh, that the additional generations in the workforce, so to speak, are bringing is, um, you know, it, it not only is it uh, helpful for moving old strategies, but it's uh, necessary for creating the new ones. Yeah, totally agree. Phil, is there anything that we haven't covered that you think would be interesting to cover? Boy, it seems like we've covered the, the, yeah, the world here, and great. it's been really enjoyable. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. So, uh, again, it's Phil Roos. It's R-O-O-S, right? Uh, and um, do you have, um, you know, is it if people want to reach out and find you, is LinkedIn the best way, or do you have any, any other places that you'd point them? Yeah, you can email me, phil.roos at glgrowthworks.com, but also check me out on LinkedIn or www.glgrowthworks.com is and our the, website. And the GL is Great Lakes? That's is that right. right? That's right. We keep a, um, that is a key part of our identity That's really here. That's great. So uh, thanks for joining us. This is the Spark.Grow web uh, podcast uh, coming from, to you from the Ann Arbor District Library. And we look forward to hearing um, and talking again to another business leader next month. Thanks, Phil. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Spark.Grow, a podcast series brought to you by Ann Arbor Spark. To learn more about Spark, visit annarborusa.org. And thank you to the Ann Arbor District Library as our recording partner. You can learn more about their resources at aadl.org.